Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Stephen Baystead for Project Cars 2, a motorsport racing sim made by Slightly Mad Studios. More from Stephen in just a few, but first we'll hear from patron of the week Lassa Anderson. Lassa and I talked about a track from Gunpoint called The Five Floor Goodbye by Ryan Ike, and we started off by talking about a track from Deus Ex Human Revolution by Mike McCann. My name is Lassa Anderson. Uh, I am 24 years old. I've been following Level and Top Score, not quite before then, but kind of after Top Score stopped being a thing. I kind of burned through all of that. I've pretty much been interested in game music and a big fan of it as long as I have been a gamer. I am a master student right now. I'm uh, doing information science, which I like to describe as humanistic IT. So I'm very interested in the ways that we design interactive and digital experiences. And I'm very interested in the ways that sound can play into directing the player and give a sense of what's going on. Also, Lasse, you're very active on our Discord page, which it occurs to me we should mention and you should, you know, talk about a little bit if you want to. Yeah, so quite recently, well, not quite recently, but a couple of months ago now, I think, we managed to get uh, get the uh, level Discord set up so that we have a little exclusive area for patrons only where uh, we can chat with each other, share our new favorite game music and whatever else. And I and Claire are moderators on there. And uh, in order to get that sorted out, uh, just check out the Patreon page because all the information to get in and chatting with us and sharing your favorite music and talking about the latest interviews is on there. Nice. But what we're, you know, actually here to talk about, of course, is some of your favorite music. And you sent a a really well thought out kind of chronological list through uh, eras starting with the PS1. And we've just been chatting about, you know, Deus Ex Human Revolution. So it's such a good score. So, uh, yeah, tell us tell us why you chose that or put it on the list. I chose Pike is Confidential, which I don't really know if that's its official name, uh, but I chose it because it, it represents, like it comes into play at a moment where you're really delving into the conspiracy that underpins the story of the game. As you transition from this big multinational uh, media house into basically an underground lair where uh, the main antagonists of uh, of the game are using an AI to manipulate the world media. This track kicks in and it starts out subtle and synthy and deep and atmospheric. So it has an air of secrecy and technological advancement about it that very much fits the setting it's in. Thank you. 
but it also calls back to one of the first pieces of music you heard in the game, which mm. is when you're trying to liberate a factory that has been taken over by terrorists. There's a similar piece of music that is slightly less synthy, but kind of plays with the same melody and some of the same motifs. And they come calling back here to remind you sort of how far you've come hmm. from just scratching at the surface of the conspiracy that underpins the game to being right in the heart of it. funny thing about that game for me is that the first time I played through it, I chose the the sniper class. I can't recall exactly what they... Well, it doesn't really have classes, but you chose to run with snipers. Yes. And, you know, shortly into it, I realized, you know, you need to just run and gun because that's what you're good at. <laughs> and well, actually, I did complete the game on hard difficulty while never, ever being detected. Wow, I th oh, that's insane. And without killing anybody except the bosses. And I ended up, of course, getting really into it then, after I kind of just stumbled through and shot a bunch of people. And then, you know, then you start really wanting to make it through without killing enemies. And it, it, I just then ended up falling in love with that game. Yeah. The game accommodates all these different sorts of play styles from run and gun style stuff to sitting at the periphery, taking out people without their buddies, even realizing where they're getting murdered from <laughs> to up close and personal and, you know, cloak and dagger sort of stuff mm -hmm. uh, to the, the ghost playthrough that I went for. And the music is designed to accommodate all of that. Right. Because, you know, every single track in the game has three layers. There's the ambient layer, which is usually the bit I find best about each of them, hmm. um, where you've just got these very calm, but still sort of tense synths going on, very much reflective of, you know, you've got the melody of the environment you're in, but it's toned down. But then if enemies start to get suspicious or a body is found or something, then it gets more tense. Then you get a little bit of bass in there, a little bit more of a beat. And then if you actually enter into an open firefight, then uh, Mike McCann's trademark love of drums really kicks in and you get some really kick-ass music going for a firefight. Yeah, no, I love it. I love that score so much. Um, but I also love the score for Gunpoint, which is an interesting, everything about that is a cool story. So tell me how you learned about 
the game Gunpoint and the track, one of the tracks that Ryan Ike did called The Five Floor Goodbye. I learned about Gunpoint from Rock, Paper, Shotgun, which is one of my favorite games news sites. And they focus very much on PC gaming news. And Tom Francis, the guy who made, who developed Gunpoint, uh, was a former journalist at PC Gamer, actually a former editor, if I'm not too mistaken, who went rogue and went developing his own game. Uh, so I heard about it through there. And since the concept of this sort of satirical noir spy puzzle game, I think it's the best way I can describe it. That really appealed to me. So I kept an eye on it. I signed up to his mailing list and wherever else. And then about halfway through development, I think, he was trying to get musicians on board. So he opened up basically an open competition to be the musician making the score for Gunpoint. Uh, And Ryan Ike won out ahead of an Italian guy who did called Francesca, I think, who did the main theme for the game. So he still got a bit of a a consolation prize there. Mm -hmm. And when I then finally played the game, I love the soundtrack as a whole. Mm -hmm. Ryan Ike did a really good job with it, I think. But the Five Floor Goodbye really appeals to me because it comes in at very climactic moments, particularly the final mission in the game where you're working your way up through the five floors the most heavily secured building in the game where you've kind of wrapped up the mystery and the, the story of the game and all that's left to do is to have revenge on the boss that we set everything in motion. goodbye being a sort of jaunty very playful tune that still has a lot of the noir motifs in it i suppose really fits well into that situation of kind of you having finished the main difficulty the main arc of the story and now it's just time to put the cherry on top and get your revenge So how does the music change through the five floors, or what happens? The music doesn't really change through the five floors. The the track plays through that entire level. What does change is that you've got cross-link mode, which is basically an alternate view that you, you flip into where you can see all the electronics that are wired up throughout this building. And that's the main mechanic of the game, is to rewire things remotely that's so right. that, uh, for example, the, the guy who you are trying to get revenge on at the, the very end there, he's got a door wired up so that when you come near to it, he can smack it open into your face and knock you down. <laughs> But you can rewire that, either so it doesn't work and you can just kick the door into his face, (laughs) or you can even rewire it in such a way that it fries him when he tries to flip the switch. Nice. (laughs) You know, that's again that whole 
playful cherry on top attitude of that final level set to the tune of the five floor goodbye. Much like Gunpoint as a game is taking the mickey out of, you know, the cliches of noir and the cliches of linear storytelling uh, and, you know, a lot of the being a wronged hero stereotypes and plot beats. It's, it's making fun of all of those things and being satirical about it. I think the soundtrack does much the same thing. Uh, with noir music because it has that jazzy like the main theme for example that's classic noir uh, <laughs> with you know, you know some very sad uh, jazzy music going on but when you get into the game itself and you start to feel in control and you start puzzling these things out it also becomes very playful and kind of mocking of noir music not only does it modernize it, but it also does make fun of it and uses its own spin to, to be, I'll say, irreverent about it. Loss's other choices were Fireworks Factory by Stuart Copeland from Spyro, Year of the Dragon. Eudora by David Bergeau from Ratchet and Clank. Malfunction by Ben Prunty from FTL. Omni by Jason Garner and Vince DeVera from Invisible Inc. and the main theme from Evil Genius by James Hannigan.
You can learn how to become a patron of the week at patreon.com slash level. Stephen Baystead is a huge Formula One fan, and that is such an important part of the music that he wrote for Project Cars 2. For this score, he ended up interviewing Ben Collins, who's a racing driver, and he also was a stig on the British show Top Gear, and clips of that interview can be heard in some of the tracks. One of the tracks that Stephen wrote pays tribute to Ayrton Senna, a Brazilian Formula One driver who died during a race in 1994, and he was considered one, or he is considered, one of the best drivers of all time. And so Stephen pays tribute to Ayrton in this uh, track called Race to Win. And, you know, Stephen talks about it. You'll hear it in the episode. In any event, here's Stephen. So tell us about Project Cars 2. Well, um, obviously a sequel, uh, which is quite interesting from a compositional point of view, because um, I remember an early conversation in the development process with the game director and the uh, CEO, and I was talking to them about the music and how we would change everything from Project Cars 1, how I was going to explore different kinds of musical styles and and they said whoa no 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 please please because we've you know we were really happy with um the first game score you did and i was thinking oh that's great because um you know you're never sure really sure you know even though people say oh it's, it's you know it's really good and we like this and, and all the rest of it as a composer you're always thinking yeah well you know it's not great and you know i could have done so much better and all the rest of it uh, anyway so that was that was good to hear so the next challenge for me was, okay, so if they don't want me to change course completely and uh, do something very different, how can I carry over the stylistic elements and some of the musical language, the vocabulary from Project Cars 1 into something that's slightly different and, you know, and moves the game on a bit, moves the, the sound world on a bit. And I knew also, fortunately that I was going to have uh, the budget to record an orchestra, um, which which was wonderful. And that in itself, you know, obviously poses challenges, but also opportunities musically. So that was an interesting kind of uh, conundrum for me. The other uh, thing that ran alongside um, Project Cars development in the back of my mind was actually timing the composition of the music. In the first game, um, going back to 2012, 13, 14, 15, I was also audio director and I was fitting in the musical composition around sound design, around developing the game. And this time I thought that really has to stop. I've got to just focus on the music at some point in the development cycle. So what I did was I allotted myself four to five months, ring-fenced. All I was going to do right at the end of the project was, was do the music. Three minutes to go. Please, can we have the grid clear now? Nine minutes and be searched out. 
so things are kind of falling into place in my head too here because you know you use some of the engine sounds and car sounds in the music which I find really cool and I'm sure you do it in some really subtle ways too and so you know this explains how you had access to those assets because you were in charge of them yeah I mean in a sense I've Ironically, I've always done that. Uh, the very first game I scored professionally, I was also audio director for, was way back in 2004. And for a couple of the, the, the music tracks in that game, uh, obviously sounded very different, different sound world completely. I did use um, some engine recordings and some tannoy announcements and things. It's just about injecting the music with some with some something authentic something of the the environment in which racing takes place something to locate the listener in the sound world because just like the first game um one of the 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 big challenges or annoying things i guess um is the fact that when when one is composing a simulation game there is no opportunity to actually score the gameplay elements themselves you're just working in the menus and in whatever cutscenes there there are in the actual build-up to the the gameplay elements mm -hmm. because obviously the car sounds take um precedence they are of paramount significance to gameplay and music would completely interfere with that so as a composer you were deprived of those moments of of uh, scoring gameplay where, where the the real excitement happens so <laughs> I think conceptually, what I'm trying to do in the menu system is prepare the player for those those gameplay moments, to locate them in the sound world, to build tension, to get them pumped up, to and and at, at the same time, obviously, to um, try to represent and convey some of the the emotional and psychological backdrop uh, of the, the the real racing drivers. And you, you ended up interviewing some drivers, right? Yeah, so interestingly, uh, one of the main voices um, in the score, uh, apart from the vocal elements, the sung vocal elements, uh, is Ben Collins, the ex-BBC Stig uh, from Top Gear. And Ben is also the voice of the race engineer in, in the game. <laughs> and I was really trying to find a way of conveying quite directly some of the thought processes and the psychology of the racing drivers because i mean i'm i'm a motorsport fan i'm a car obsessive i love everything to do about formula one to do about gt racing and le mans and all the rest of it and to me those men and women who race cars professionally are they you know they've got something very different than me i'm uh, you know i'm i'm not that brave i'm not that crazy <laughs> to put my life on the line in a in a car to to you know just to try to compete against um one's rival you know why what pushes them to do that why do they do those kinds of things and i wanted to find out and wanted to try to convey some of the inner game that was going on psychologically with them and i thought the best way was to sit down with Ben over a coffee, um, and we, we did this uh, while we were recording the score, actually, which was quite interesting. <laughs> and I was saying to Ben, you know, so tell me, what do you feel about racing? How do you actually do this? How do you actually 
push yourself to the very limits, to the very limits of your endurance, your capabilities, the the limits of the car's capabilities to a point where you could really get hurt or even worse. And one of the things that really sticks in my mind from that conversation, because it, it, the conversation lasted about half an hour, we were exploring all sorts of things. And I was only ever going to take sort of five second uh, extracts from it. One of the things that I took away from that and it and appears in one of the tracks is he says, and I paraphrase, the greatest fear is losing rather than being hurt. And that, you know, that, that, to, me, that to me is completely the obverse of my normal kind of, uh, the way in which I lead my life. Right. You, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't push yourself too far in case you get hurt, do you? The fear of losing is far greater than, than the, the, the fear of being hurt. And that means that you've very much got to weigh up your opponents to see where they are. And you're wheel to wheel with these guys. If they're in a strong situation, their car is running well, and you're both in, in a good position. At that point, it's, it's like playing high speed poker. But for him and the racing drivers, you know, they're, they're more concerned about losing. And, and, and also he was talking about the fact that um, you don't really, because you, I guess you have so much confidence in your ability to control the car at the limit. You don't worry so much about what, what could happen, what might happen. And because you can react to something that goes wrong, which is quite an interesting kind of concept. So that was, that was very fascinating. And also um, one of the tracks, I wanted to write a piece um, that would be a tribute to Ayrton Senna, you know, who obviously unfortunately lost his life in 1994. And I remember watching that race and vividly and seeing the, the accident happen. And of course, you know, as a fan, you know, it's a great loss in that respect and a great loss for the sport. But it does, I was 25 at the time, I think, and, you know, it, it makes a, a big impact emotionally on, on, you know, on you as a spectator. And I wanted to kind of express a couple of sides of his persona, at least his persona that's portrayed in the press, i.e. The, the most talented, gifted driver who possibly ever walked the planet on the one hand, and this uh, person who would be completely uncompromising. And in one interview that he gave to Jackie Stewart, um, obviously a very famous um, British racing driver, Scottish racing driver. He said that if you do not ever, and I'm paraphrasing again, if you don't go for the gap, if you don't try to overtake someone, if you don't try to win, you are no longer a racing driver. You know, And he said, he keeps repeating, I race to win. And so um, one of the, the, the uh, soprano vocal lines in, in the, the tribute is in Portuguese, Brazilian, or Brazilian Portuguese, I think that's what, the right way around. Is I, you know, I win uh, because I wanted to, to kind of get the the dual, the dual character there. And in that particular piece, uh, I got a very very good friend of mine's wife to, who's a fabulously talented um, classical guitarist, to to render some of my piano sketches into proper classical guitar mm. um, figuration but also to inject some kind of Brazilian flavor to them, um, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's that, and then there's some uh, Brazilian Portuguese in there. And, and I just, it's, it's, quite a, a diff, it's quite a departure in the score, I think, this. And it's quite emotionally charged, and it's, 
Um, it's slower. There's, there's, it's just a, an emotional piece, and I think I just wanted to convey the sense of bravery, the sense of loss, the sense of pride. working on the two Need for Speed games uh, back in 2009 and 2011. In 2011, we did a score. I was working with Charles Deenan at the, at the time. He was um, the audio director um, at EA, primarily on the uh, Need for Speed franchises. And we together came up with uh, the idea of taking licensed music, because I think that was what was uh, required from the licensing, uh, from the uh, marketing department. They they wanted to, to, to use licensed music, of course, to access and to kind of market to a specific uh, demographic. And we came up with the idea of, of renegotiating, reframing this music in such a way that it would be dramatic, it would be powerful, it would be cinematic. And epic and it would represent the underlying aesthetic of the game which was at that time uh, the driver's battle just to try to again get inside the head of the racing driver and the, the sheer physical and uh, mental brutality of the sport because the sound of the cars is is brutal they're 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 incredibly powerful machines they're 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 crazily loud and it's a physical sensation when you hear them up close and to try to convey that um not only uh, as a you know in terms of the, the sheer sound of them in a game is tricky but also musically i think poses lots of challenges put it that way but yes. um interesting ones compositionally Now, I mean, you knew by the time you started writing that you were going to have a, a orchestra, correct? Yeah, um, absolutely, and that that does change the way you approach a score. Of for sure, for sure. So, talk to me a little bit about that. How do you think? I mean, do you think you would have had as many solo lines if you were, uh, you know, being using samples? Because samples can sound really amazing too. Um, but we all know that the live musician is the is kind of the pinnacle there. So, how do you think it would have been different? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> a very interesting question, and quite difficult to um, sure. to answer. But sure. I'll, I'll have a go. I think certainly with the the solo vocal, that wouldn't have changed because, as you know from our previous discussion, my wife is an opera singer, and she. Um, very kindly sings um, on my scores, which is, is wonderful. And she's also a, a fabulous pianist and plays a lot of the piano lines, particularly in, in some of the film scores for me. But the solo cello stuff, I think, I think the best answer I can give is the fact that I would probably never 
do a solo line or an instrumental solo line in samples because with a with a say a string section you can get fairly close you know with some movement and um, some careful programming you can get a, a, a fair approximation of a real orchestra and again with brass with brass sections you can you can get fairly close and particularly with with loud epic music with lots of percussion and lots of stuff happening and maybe synths underneath the difference between a full orchestra and um samples is smaller than it is let's say uh with solo instruments Mm -hmm. with a solo line particularly strings or 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 brass instruments it's a million miles away from being approximate and that's and you know i mean i've i've fortunately got the best sample libraries you know obviously we all as composers invest heavily in that sort of stuff mm-hmm. but i think one of the the things i've learned over the years is the fact that um working with um solo instrumentalists is um not only immensely rewarding because you get their musicianship in return and you get their ideas and you you know, you say to them, okay, here's, here's my line. Um, and then they might make some suggestions about phrasing or shaping or whatever. And I think the, the magical thing is if you just have one instrumentalist, one live instrumentalist amongst whatever samples you're using, it lifts everything. It just transforms everything because you've, you've injected the score or the demo or whatever you're doing with, with something live, something living, breathing, expressive. Um, and, you know, no matter how good the samples are, and they're fabulously good these days, um, you just can't replace that musicianship. You can't replace all of those years of training and the, the professionalism of, of the player and their their musicianship. You can't yeah. do it. And their personality. And so, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so... Um, my my thinking, rightly or wrongly, is the fact that you know whatever it costs, it, it's just it's worth it musically. You know, it, it has to be worth it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the orchestra. This was the London Metropolitan Orchestra. Yeah. Not no slouches. They're amazing. So yeah, they, <laughs> <laughs> they can play. So uh, tell me a little bit about working with them. And you recorded at Air, right? Yeah. Um, so last year I recorded a uh, score to Red Bull Air Race, the game. What a, what a title. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was very fortunate enough to use um, a very similar brass lineup to um, that which I used uh, recently on Project Cars 2 and most of the same players. And I used a smaller string section there um, to overdub sample lines um, on strings, which is, of course, an option. Uh, with samples you can just help shape phrasing and just mm-hmm. round off the rough edges of the samples so i'd used um them before i'd used smaller ensembles out of that orchestra before on various film scores that i'd composed and the director of the orchestra andy brown i've known for maybe 10 years now and um you know we've worked on various projects together and um he's also a honorary master's recipient at the university um here in chichester um so we've we've got a a really good working relationship and for project cars 2 as i was explaining earlier i had the budget 
which is not inconsiderable, as you can imagine. Um, so our discussions initially were to do with forces and how long it would take to record the necessary number of minutes for the score. Bear in mind, it's not like a, an adventure game where there are lots of loops and layers and, and all sorts of um, technical issues to do with um, recording and editing the music. It, these are uh, full-length tracks, linear music, mm -hmm. linearly, linearly composed. So um, it's simpler to record in that respect. So our initial discussions were to do with um, forces. We decided upon 40 strings, which... Um, is a kind of medium-sized string section. Mm -hmm. um, but crucially, in that hall, in the Air Lindhurst Hall, 40 strings does sound very large. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just the most wonderful studio, the wonderful acoustic, which is is kind of legendary. I think Hans Zimmer records pretty much um, all of his scores there, if, if that's possible. And... What I love about air is the the people there. It's such a relaxed environment. It's um, I've done a lot of recording there over the last sort of five years. Lots of voiceover recordings as well for various games, and I feel really comfortable there. And you just walk into this this space, and it's it's the the dome of a a beautiful church, obviously modified. And it's just the most inspiring space and the acoustic is incredible. And the, the way in which the sound seems to propagate and emerge and reflect from, from all the surfaces is just incredible. You, you, you get one player in there and magic happens in there. I don't know what it is, actually. It's, a, it's, really, it's really difficult to ex explain and express without sounding you know, completely over the top, but it, it, it is really incredible space and and it does sound magical and the control room is lovely and they've got a, a wonderful Neve desk and hmm. the engineers are fab and, you know, it's 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 a great place to work. Um, and Hampstead is lovely in London as well. And of course you can park outside, <laughs> which, is, which is amazing. So in my mind, there was never any question of not recording there. Um, and with the LMO, they've got the most amazing history of AAA game scores, tons and tons of Hollywood movies, of course, um, and uh, lots of very famous TV, including all of the Morse and Lewis um, series of, of films and uh, TV films over the years. And the players in London um, are just just remarkable, mind-blowing. And, and as a composer, what's what's really challenging is is actually being critical because you're sitting there you're you've got your score in front of you uh, because actually as a composer in in a, that kind of environment with an orchestra and a, there's an engineers there's engineers um recording your music and making sure the microphones are set up properly etc and there's an orchestrator there there are, there's a librarian there as well making sure the music is in the right place at the right time etc so as a composer, all you're doing is looking at your score and thinking, oh, my God, there are 60 or 70 musicians in this most remarkable space playing your music, for one thing. And the sound that comes back, you're, all you think is, this sounds amazing. And you're pinching yourself because you're there. <laughs> and you've got a lump in your throat because you've, you've tortured yourself for 
four or five months writing this stuff and you're always thinking it's rubbish and it's not going to sound good and you know i you know i hate it you know because if you don't if you don't feel that then why would you bother composing ever again but that's another question so you're sitting there and you're thinking this just sounds amazing and what you're not doing is being critical about the performance that they're giving and you rely then on other people to say to to you okay let's let's do it again i thought the intonation here was a bit off or whatever and you need that kind of team around you to to sort of snap you out of this this oh my god this sounds amazing but with the london players and i'm sure it's the same in la as well um they are just the most remarkable sight readers Yes. So literally the music goes on the stands and they play through it and you you sit there and think well, well that was great um next uh, <laughs> yeah next exactly and and then the, most of the time if it's if you know it's a, a fairly simple cue uh simple piece of music they will say you know we'll, we'll just say well let's do another take for safety just in case something mm-hmm. happened or we even get a better performance or whatever but it's so unlikely that you need to record three or four takes because you know it's just great off the blocks and it's just remarkable and of course that you know it i I talked to my wife susan and she went to the royal college of music she studied piano and voice and violin and you know she studied for five hours a day played piano five five hours a day and you know sung for when she was doing the the vocal bits the vocal training singing loads and loads every day and she sort of says, well, yeah, what do you expect? You know, you put in the hours and that's what happens. But it just it's just remarkable to me, really. Yeah. Just to, the, the level of musicianship is incredible. Well, and we should talk a little bit more about your wife because she's so fabulous. Susan Legg, right? (laughs) She is. She is. She sounds amazing. And she played that lovely list arrangement of the Beethoven on the first uh, Project Cars album. That that gives me an excuse to put a little clip of that in there because she sounded fabulous on that. So so talk to me a little bit about uh, just about just tell us a little bit more about her if you think that's okay. <laughs> well, no, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, um, I'm obviously biased, but um, <laughs> as as one would expect. But no, she went to the Royal College of Music and studied violin, piano initially. Piano was her first instrument, and then violin second study, and then thought, oh, I might take up the I might take up uh, vocal studies instead of the violin. So she did a double first study. Her vocal studies culminated in her going to the National Opera Studio, which is a a kind of hothouse in London for opera singers. And from there, she went to Glyndebourne and then to Bayreuth and then to Wexford and uh, Ischia and various other places. as a professional opera singer and then decided to focus primarily on later on to focus primarily on um leader and chanson and particularly french chanson and uh, uh and leader and um well so unless i'm so i don't want to interrupt you but chanson and leader being basically like short songs yeah absolutely yep. yeah, yeah like absolutely. The schubert wrote a billion of them and then the french people wrote a billion of them too 
She sounds absolutely lovely on on both scores, of course. It, oh, well, it thank you. really adds – I, I love what it adds because it's not the first thing I think of when I think of, again, a racing sim. I don't think of this beautiful mezzo-soprano operatic voice. And it just it just adds this really touching element to the score. I think one of the primary reasons for her voice being on there in the first place is that when one thinks of Ferraris, for example, or Lamborghinis, the Italian manufacturers of exotic racing cars and indeed road cars, how would one as a composer express the beauty, the the emotional kind of uh, associations of those cars and the way they make the drivers feel, etc.? without opera i can't almost quite imagine it because i suppose in a cliched way in a in a kind of um um stereotypical way one associates ferrari the the italianness with with opera as it were i don't know if that makes any sense but it does to me yes <laughs> it's probably probably the main thing <laughs> Thank you so much. What an amazing pleasure to, to get it, to chat with you again. And hopefully we'll do this in another two years, huh? Let's hope so. Uh, thank you so much, Emily. Thanks for listening to episode 88 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Stephen Baystead at stephenbaystead.com, and that's Stephen with a PH. You can also learn more about him and see a playlist on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily. And learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Incorporated. <laughs>